Konigstein Road in the east to Casitas Gap in the west, and the orange curtain is descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hi everyone, I'm Brett Bradigan, editor of Ojai's Magazines, the quarterly and monthly. Few figures loom as large in Ojai's cultural landscape as Beatrice Wood. In her 105 years of life, she achieved much and left an enduring presence, including inspiring James Cameron's character Rose in the blockbuster Titanic and in Truffaut's Jewels at Jim. But the greatest work of art for this sketch artist, painter, and ceramicist may well have been her own life. And who better to talk about that inspiring life than Kevin Wallace, the executive director of the Beatrice Wood Center for the Arts. Hey Kevin, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I'm really, uh, heard your fascinating talk uh, the uh, last week about uh, Beatrice Wood and, and Eve Babbitts and the whole Los Angeles cultural scene. And I thought, well, let's, let's go deeper. Let's talk about Beatrice Wood's role in the art world and how that relates to Ojai and as the director of the Beatrice Wood Center, who better to have that conversation with? <laughs> yeah, that works for me. Right. So, um, yeah, Beatrice Wood. I mean, it, it's an interesting thing. I've spent, what, we opened in 2005, so I've spent, you know, these years um, doing what I'm doing because she is such a fascinating woman and, um, and Having you know met, met her, she, she had such generosity of spirit. Um, I'm, she's left me very inspired enough to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, so, so Beatrice Wood, um, you know, yeah, as I told visitors, the center. It's a long story. She lived 105 years and had this really amazing life. 105 very active yeah, years. Exactly, exactly, and and interesting right from the beginning. She's one of those people that was. Um, seemed to be in the culture milieu every step uh, of the way. like they used to call it. <laughs> yeah. Remember that Woody Allen movie? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Indeed. So, um, so yeah, so um, starting off with, you know, long before she got to Ojai, she, of course, had, had quite a life's journey. And I always tell people that um, the, the best way to know her character is um, in James Cameron's Titanic because she was the inspiration for the young Rose. And it was, you know, spot on as far as the, the m controlling mother wanting her to be proper society, the rebellious young girl, the, um, um, the wanting Bohemian. her to marry. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing. It was, it was you know, that it, so that's like who she was and she was rebellious all the way to the end, she liked to shock people. She liked to stir things up. Um, mm -hmm. She, um, if she thought she could get to you a little bit and you know embarrass you or make you laugh or you know get you, she would do it. You know, she'd flirt with flirt very openly with you, just to get see what your reaction would yeah, be. <laughs> see if she could put you on your back foot. <laughs> exactly. See how, see how you'd react. Exactly. I guess there's a freshness in that. Um, people live inside their polite convention so much that somebody comes along who's willing to kind of poke and prod a little bit, right. stir things up. It gets, uh, gets uh, you know, broadens the human experience instead of everybody just in their cookie cutters. Exactly, and I think that's what she did, is I think because she challenged the norms in her life, she liked to help people challenge the norms in theirs, 
and um, that's that's who she was. So um, she she kept it interesting. So um, you know, she had studied art. She she knew the. She, now now she grew up in a. A wealthy San Francisco family. Well, they, she was born in San Francisco. They lived in New York for most of her life, and then she summered in Paris, which, to tell you the truth, is probably where everything changed because in um, experiencing the museums and art and culture and yeah. everything that her mother thought was the proper thing for a young girl of the time to do, instead this whole world opened up to her. Yeah, this would have been just post La Belle Époque. Yes. Yes. And pre, uh, I, what's the fin de siècle? I don't even know if I'm pronouncing I that right. But where's the the between the, 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 the Belle Epoque and the 1890s? I think they both are in that. I guess La Belle Epoque or the fin de siècle was leading up to World War One. Right. So sure that would have been her, her, her time leading up yeah. to World War One. Um, but yes, the exposure to um, yeah. You, between art school in Giverny and then um, studying with the, the teachers of Comédie Française and being exposed to, you know, attending... The stage. Yeah, 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 and attending the Rites of Spring, Stravinsky's yeah, and Nijinsky's big piece. Very polarizing moment. Right, and she applauded while well, half the crowd was... She was like, that part of the crowd. <laughs> not, the, that part. not the storm out of protest... Exactly. Part of the crowd. Yeah, and, but again, that, that's very much her character because, because that did very much what she tried to do on a personal level and professional level all yeah. her life is, is that sort of expansion of, um, of what's possible and not letting us get stuck in these stage yeah. lives. Now, Stravinsky has a lot of history with Ojai because he's the music director for the Ojai Music Festival a lot back in its early days and set the template him and Lawrence Morton, I feel. Those are the two most influential founders of the music festival. I mean, Jack Bauer, or not Jack Bauer, um, John Bauer was, you know, the mm -hmm. local uh, impresario who got it launched. But it's interesting, you were talking about that with Mark, the degrees of Ojai, everything seems to just... All roads seem the, to the lead The Mobius strip of Ojai, everything is like... <laughs> twisted together. It, 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 it's fascinating. It, it's endlessly fascinating. I always tell people to, you know, go look at Wikipedia and see who, who's lived in Ojai at some point, and it's sort of like the who's who of, yeah. of art, culture, music, television, film. It's, um, it's, it's rich. And, did did Beatrice Wood form a personal relationship with Igor Stravinsky? She did not. She did because, not. yeah, Eve Babbitt's family was very close with Stravinsky, and part of the reason why, you know, they were also founders of the music festival and <clears throat> sort right. of encouraged uh, Stravinsky to help them set it up. And I think Stravinsky was her godfather, right? Uh, was Babbitt's. Babbitt's godfather, yes. Eve Babbitt's yeah. godfather. So that's, yeah, that's pretty close. You know. But back to uh, uh, Beatrice, World War One era, who were some of the people she was hanging out with? Well, what happened, of course, was the uh, was World War One, which is what changed everything. Um, brought her back to um, the United, back to New York City, but also then brought all these French artists to New York City. And the Dada movement, it started off in Zurich, and then when um, with Marcel, then with Marcel Duchamp, Picabia, um, Henri Pierre Rocher, and all of these individuals, they found that they is a very common. They they had a lot of common thinking about art with that group, and so they became the New York Dada movement. And 
1917. And this is post-Armory Show, the famous Armory Show. Right, so Duchamp was already sort of this rock star of the art world. Um, rock star in the sense that he was like, you know, shocking, the, 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 the first wave of like the way Elvis was a shocking yeah. shock to everybody. Here's this guy doing um, cubism and futurism and creating the, this painting of the new descending a staircase. There was all the talk of New York. I mean, he was probably the first big modern art, exposure to modern art. I mean, nobody, Picasso was in the same ex exhibition and nobody really seemed to notice. Um, yeah. So, so, um, but of course, Beatrice Wood, when she met Marcel Duchamp, she just saw this handsome, charming, highly intelligent man and was just impressed with him on this personal level. Um, and when she first encountered modern art in the home of the Ahrensbergs, who were the collectors he, was, he introduced her to, she thought it was all nonsense. She thought it was horrible, horrible stuff. A grift. <laughs> yes. Yes, and she, and, and she just, you know, and she thought, I know art, this is not art. And, um, but then she, you know, said that one day sitting in front of a Matisse work in their collection, her eyes opened up to modern art, and suddenly she saw. And then what she it was all it. about, yeah. And a lot of that uh, foundation, as I think we've talked about this before, was because of World War One was the carnage and the, and the failure of all the old regimes and ways of doing things that um, they just wanted to get away from all that, that they just had to take that down and start over with the tabula rasa. Yes, it was an aesthetic revolution. They basically said, if this is where civilization brought us, yeah. and Beatrice would always <clears throat> pointed out that it was the first war where they dropped bombs from airplanes to kill as many people as possible. And the, the sense of these artists and writers and intellectuals was indeed that we had to start again. And they set about reinventing painting, poetry, theater, um, you know, ev everything. Basically, it's as far as in the yeah. arts, they, you know, they were mostly artists. So they, uh, but it was a real revolutionary way of thinking that ultimately proved very um, influential on and durable. Yes, exactly. exactly. Now, what um, at the moment? In artists in this milieu, did they have any sense that they were creating a movement? I bet they must have had some. Now I know it's the labels didn't get attached till quite further down the road, but there must have been some sense mm -hmm. in that cohort that they were doing big things. Right. Well, they you know there were a lot of movements. It was a time of of art movements and things, and in some cases, like with Dadaism in Zurich, um, this guy Tristan Zara. What, you know, pretty much said, okay, I'm the head of this, and they came up with this name Dada, and they were very much aware of that, in the same way that André Breton with Surrealism basically said, okay, I'm the one that decides what's Surrealism, what's not, you yeah. know, so there, there, there were people, there, I think there was a lot of posturing for position in that, in that way, yeah. um, <clears throat> but they were also different, and some of the, the, best, the greatest Dada artists were people that were not going to join any movement, um, but were very, and, but just by who they were, what made them Dada. Yeah. Well, it's more of an attitude at some point, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. And how would you describe that attitude? 
Um, I would say it's um, anything goes. Let's. Um, I, I would say the Dadaism was very much like Marlon Brando in that famous role where they say, "What are you rebelling against?" And oh he, yeah, and he the said, uh, wild ones. The wild ones. And his answer yeah. was, "What you got?" Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say that's the uh, that was the attitude of the Dadaism. I think the that's definitely informed a lot of those method actors. <laughs> I think that that whole uh, who who are you who are you not the negative spaces. There, there you go. Yeah. So it was, it was rebellion, you know, and it was, it was very much like the counterculture movement, which, which took place in the late 60s and early yeah. 70s. And, Minus and, the and drugs and rock and roll. Probably yeah. with the sex, though, but without yeah, the drugs yeah, there and was, rock and there roll. There was definitely a sexual revolution going on among the uh, bohemian set at the time. And women were very active in the Dada movement. Both yeah, in Zurich and there was like a par or an equality, they didn't take a second seat. That was part of the conventions, that they were overturning exactly. gender roles. Exactly. And that's, so. uh, especially in France, they already had a history that, you know, George Sand wore trousers and smoked cigarettes with a holder, and there was a lot of, a lot of uh, nonconformity going on. There was already that pattern established, and plus the license to, to do it that you would not find in even San Francisco or New York in that, of that era. Yes, yes. Because uh, the, the next sort of iteration of... Dadaism that a lot of Americans would be familiar with is the, and I'm not going to get the name of it, the Armut piece. Right, what right. Was that it, was called, that? it was called Fountain. And, it was and um, basically it was a, an exhibition, an, an independence exhibition where everybody could pay a certain amount of money and exhibit, I think it was three artworks. And, um, you know, whether they were sculpture or paintings. And Duchamp came up with this idea where he took a urinal, turned it on its side, signed it Armut, 19, dated 1917, and put it in the show, just knowing it would cause a big hubbub. I mean, yeah. that, that's about the most da-da thing you could do. That's right. Really. And, poke in the eye. And it did. It, it caused it. And the whole reason for signing Armut was so that Beatrice Wood and Marcel Duchamp could then write this um, big defense of how brilliant this work of art was. Because it oh, was, it was a, game. a setup. Yeah. yeah. They, were, they were prepared for the... For the they were ready to counterpunch. Yeah, it was Marcel Duchamp's personality. He liked to play games. He really yeah, did. Play, and, and a play, in a playful way, not a cynical, or mean way. Right, exactly. In, in, a, in, a, in the way that where you challenge preconceptions. I mean, that's yeah. what it was all about. And that's sort of what Beatrice Wood was. You know, that she was a true Dadaist. Yeah. And me. what was the nature of their relationship? I know it's like if they were on Facebook today, it'd be like, it's complicated. Yeah. Well, she was, um, first she became the um, lover of uh, Henri-Pierre Rocher, who was Duchamp's best friend. And, um, and, she, was, and she admitted to um, Rocher that she was in love with Marcel and was thinking about him all the time. And, yeah. and Rocher thought that was wonderful because, you know, he loved Marcel. Um, but then after Rocher cheated on her and the two of them split up, um, she became Marcel Duchamp's lover for a period of time, and or one of his lovers. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and because In of the harem. Um, yeah, because <laughs> because of Jules and Jim and the purported, you know, the idea that people had this idea that this is sort of the menage a trois yeah, relationship, and, and Beatrice would always wanted to make it clear: no, I was this person's lover, then I was this person's lover. Linear, not. Yeah. Uh, Exactly. exactly together at the same time even though she created a famous um painting around that time of i think 
six to eight dadas all in the bed, all in bed together, following. Yeah, the, the I think I've seen a reproduction bowl. of that. Yeah. So, um, but but she says that's because they were part, out partying all night with this with this blind man's ball, and they just fell in bed asleep together. Yeah, it's all perfectly innocent. Yes. Exactly. Well, the um, you know about that about her work. There's some consistencies I see from her sketches and color drawings to the ceramics. I just wonder how that came about. What was the... Because <clears throat> I see that today. I see people that draw in that very whimsical fashion, which is subversive because you expect it to be so innocent or, um, I don't even know what's the word, playful, and then it then there's a bit of menace in there sometimes. There's like a bit of shadow, and you start thinking, wow, there's a lot going on. Right, right. Well, as far as I know, Beatrice Wood is the only person to have been personally tutored by Marcelo Duchamp in a studio. Yeah. Um, she had an agreement that um, she had the keys to the studio, and unless they had some system by which he let her know they were, he was entertaining a woman in there. Put a sock um, on the door. Yeah, had sock on the door now. Like um, so he would come in at the end of the day and look at her, what she was doing, and he would say, okay, good, good, bad, good, bad. And he would basically rate the works based upon to what extent she was using technical expertise, which would be bad, or um, using some style, you know, being stylistic in some accepted manner. He would, he would say that's bad. And every time she was a little more free, a little more from the subconscious, a little more raw, a little more what he would see as pure, he would feel that was good. And so um, the, so the, her style of drawing um, was a combination of her years of um, learning and practice and then um, the influence of, of Duchamp. So, wow. um, so and, she did, and she drew throughout her life. Um, and toward the end of her life, uh, the last 20 years or so, she did a lot more of the works on paper. And as part of the Dada movement, that's what, what she was known as. She was doing watercolor, yeah. gouache, graphite um, drawings. Yeah, that, that uh, are instantly recognizable. They are, they are. She had a, she had a way of almost um, approaching people like sh in a shorthand way. She would decide whether they really needed a chin or whether they the arms were important or not important. And so yeah. parts of their body would disappear in the drawings, and she did that throughout her life, or be distorted in some way. Um, so, yeah, she had a very definite um, style, and a, a sophisticated style, and she could, you know, um, properly execute a portrait. It's uh, which like draftsmanship. She had the fine draftsmanship. Right, which happened again with her ceramics. The exact same thing happened. Yeah. So what uh, was her first exposure to Ojai? It came pretty early, right? Wasn't just not... It was, she's still in that uh, milieu, the still that right, uh, right. movement milieu. It's, um, well, she became a theosophist. Um, and Did she ever... Now, Madame Blavatsky li lived well into the... Or, no, maybe she didn't quite make it into the 20th century. I can't remember now. No, so Annie Besant took it over right. from Madame Blavatsky. Right, so Beatrice... And really advanced the whole cause because she was already known as a feminist and a speaker and a labor organizer and a free India and free Ireland person. And, and a well-known, a, a famous orator at the time, which is yeah. just what theosophy needed. <clears throat> While Madame Blavatsky was much more eccentric... Um, and mystical. Um, and mystical. Yeah. Um, but Beatrice Wood was well aware of um, Levasky's writings, read them regularly, and under to what I, you know, understood them to the extent that they could be understood. 
Um, but yes, it was Annie Besant that was really the big inspiration for Beatrice Wood and the reason she um, became very much involved with theosophy, which led um, which led her to 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 Ohio, you know, for first to Los Angeles because there was a, a parallel. Um, happening in the Hollywood Hills and Beechwood Canyon, the original Crotona was there. Yeah, which is near um, Hollywood Bowl. Right, right. And like the road, the, like the road, it's the road that goes up to the Hollywood sign. But the Hollywood Bowl was actually originally part of that whole Crotona thing. It's where they did theater, yeah. including Beatrice Wood doing these outdoor, um, outdoor pieces, because um, she was an actress throughout all this time, which we hadn't mentioned. Yeah. And this probably is not the time to talk about that, but I sure would love to have a conversation at some point. The theosophists were getting big, too big for the 10 acres or 12 acres or whatever they had there, which is some of the prime real estate in Hollywood. But they um, were negotiating with the Carranza government in Mexico to buy the entire state of Baja, California, or whatever they called it, Sur California or something at that point, for $70 million dollars. And Ojai was like their second choice. And there's like a lot of stuff. We don't have to go into that. But if you have any any special right. knowledge about that, I'd love to have that talk because I'm just fascinated by it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that much history <clears throat> on that part. I do know in 1912 they started Crotona in Hollywood. It was basically a utopian colony. Um, and part of the problem was that while they thought that they had created this sort of perfect place off in the woods... Um, the Hollywood film industry was happening, and the silent films yeah, were happening. Yeah, Gower Gulch and all that, yeah, just and all those, up around them. Yeah. Yeah. And those people, the, the silent film actors, were as decadent and badly behaved as anything that's going on on TMZ today. Oh, yeah, before so, the before the Hayes Code came in, after right. Fetty Arbuckle and Hollywood Babylon <laughs> and all that. All that, exactly. Yeah. So that was part of what brought them here, too. So, um, but, but, yes, they were... Looking, they they had a number of very wealthy um, followers internationally, so they could raise money. For instance, when the time came that Annie Besant decided she wanted to buy what's now considered Happy Valley and Upper Ojai, five hundred acres, as well as you know there was a big real estate um, venture at taking place out in Miners Oaks area of Ojai. Um, the the the, peop- the funds were easy to raise. People had a lot of um, yeah. respect for Annie Besant. And then she believed she was following the masters and doing their will. Um, it's a very... And she, had, she had Ojai targeted uh, before Krishnamurti came along. I, I believe that she only spent like a few few, tri- a few days here over right. a couple trips, but she called it the Smiling Veil. I just love that. I use that all the time, the Smiling Veil. <laughs> nice, yeah. nice. Yeah, Ojai was... Um, that the Krishnamurti was brought here because of Nitya, his younger brother, who had tuberculosis. Nitya. And they felt that the um, the Ojai atmosphere air, would, would yeah, air would which be good. were already well established as a as a sanatorium area for tuberculosis. Mm-hmm, right, and and you know to this day, uh, Ojai has a higher than um, average number of senior citizens because of course the hot air, whether you're having issues with breathing or arthritis or whatever it is, you know. It's it's a good environment. Yeah. So um, so that's that's the fact that there are theosophists here, and um, and that you having that situation is what brought brought them here. Yeah. Now I look at Ojai, the facets of Ojai life. I feel like 
Beatrice Wood is the confluence of several of those. Mm -hmm. Certainly the spiritual mysticism, uh, the oriental influences through the theosophists, yes. but also the art. Like she's got to be one of the primary art artists who lived here in Ohio in that time or moved or was influenced by or inspired right. by Ohio. I don't know that we really had any kind of an art colony before yeah, she, she came she, along. She was really the beginning of it. I mean, she was, um, um, I think if you go back, there was Guignon was, was here and he had, he knew people like Man Ray. There's, there was a lot of, there were some yeah. people coming through Ojai. Um, but Beatrice Wood moving here, uh, and at this point, when she, when she moved here, which would be right around 46, um, the Dada movement and Marcel Duchamp had not yet been um, really historically viewed as being as important as it was. And for her, that was just sort of something that happened in her past. Those were friends. She was really yeah. came here to be a potter and have, the, have her life as a ceramic artist and to be here where Christian Murdy was and where Theosophy and Rosalind, her best friend, was here. Oh, uh, Rosalind Rajagopal yes. was Beatrice Wood's best friend. Yeah, yeah. She, mm -hmm. she, she thought she thought so much of both of the Rajagopals. Yeah. They um, and, <clears throat> and so she was part of that that circle. So and that cir that that circle of of people connected with Christian marine Theosophy was was pretty rich. I mean, people like Aldous Huxley weren't um, Theosophists, but they were part of that circle as were a number yeah. of artists and now, intellectuals. I think and uh, maybe we talked about this before, but. In the Doors of Perception, he describes three mescaline trips, one of which took place in Upper Ojai. I didn't know that. I did not know that. And he was talking about, and i got to go back and check this, but he was talking about this graveyard for cars, like a junkyard of cars. And I'm like, oh, that didn't sound like Ojai, I know. But I would, did was hiking one time and got got a bit lost, a bit uh, bewildered about distances, and I walked right into this field of rusty old Model A's and Model T's and wow. old Packards and Studebakers, like, you know, very well rusted. They would have been rusted even when he was doing this, which would have been early 50s, I believe. Right. Yes. But Aldous Huxley, yeah, he had a great affinity for Ojai and helped found Happy Valley School. Now he, he was very school, as involved. did... Rosalind Rajkapal and Guido Ferrante and and the foundation of which you're the director came significantly later, but didn't they control her her collection? How did how did that work? What's the with, with, how's with Beatrice yeah. Happy Valley? She was uh, Annie Besson to 1927 predicted that the future plans. Um, for Happy Valley included a school and an art center, as well as a number of other things. Um, so she laid out this vision. Uh, she laid out the know, vision ninety-five years ago, or whatever. Right, and then so for decades, the Happy Valley, and then you know, of course, Krishnamurti made his famous "Truth is a Pathless Land" speech and sort of gave up this whole idea of um, having a Messiah involved, yeah. which changed the game a little bit, but. Um, the early decades of the Happy Valley Foundation was really all about, well, how do we realize Dr. Besant's vision and where do we go from go from here? And so in the 1940s, Rosalind Roger Powell is the one that pushed through the idea of the school and getting the school started, even though Happy Valley wasn't ready for it, doing it in Lower Ojai. And, um, and then in the early 70s, um, the time came to build the school up there and Rosalind was ready to 
Rosalind was the chairman of the board and as well as the head of school, and she wanted very much to take the next big step in realizing Annie Besant's vision, part of which was um, asking Beatrice Wood to build her home up in Happy Valley, to sell her home in Lower Ohio, so that would become an art center, and also the beginnings of what became the Ojai Foundation, um, oh, really? which, which, and all of that, which part of that was sort of like a way of realizing um, the original vision for that was much closer to what Annie Besant's vision was. So the 70s were a time of taking this big step forward in making that happen. Yeah. So that was the, the groundwork for that was all laid. And this all came out of uh, her 1927 vision of the plans for this. And there were some parts of it that didn't quite come together and some that did. It was, uh, you know, some hits and misses, I believe. Yes. Now, Oak Grove School was affiliated with the foundation at one point, or no? Was that a completely separate foundation? It's, it's a completely separate thing. What happened was that Krishnamurti and Aldous Huxley basically made some notes about what the school, the Happy Valley School, should be. And, it was, and it's the Socratic small... Small yeah. Yes, all, this, all those ideas they, they came up with and that laid the groundwork. So, and Krishnamurti was very much involved with the beginnings of the school, but he had different ideas than Rosalind's ideas. For instance, Krishnamurti believed the school should be vegetarian, completely vegetarian, while Rosalind believed you should not push vegetarianism on people. They should come to realize yeah. that that's the right thing to do. By themselves. A, yes, I see how that works. Like, and, uh, and, and it's so, like a kid, if you if you force him to give up something or to eat something else, then there's going to be a built-in resistance. And if you just let them set up the conditions that they come to that themselves, then it's a lifelong. And it's they've learned that themselves, yeah. Exactly. So Oak Grove was really, <clears throat> as well as the other schools that Christian Marie's involved with starting, was really more about... Um, some, some ideas that he had that were different than the way the Happy Valley School, what it became. Yeah. Well, they seem to have, have found their way. Both yes. of them are successful institutions and a big part of the community. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. And then also uh, the ranch house was part of that milieu. Uh, well, was Beatrice Wood a vegetarian herself or a vegan? She was. She was vegetarian. The yes. whole time. Um, it's not clear when she became a vegetarian. She was certainly from the time she became a theosophist, so certainly from the 1920s forward. Yeah, I'm, well, there was a whole back-to-nature movement that came out of Germany in the 1890s. There was like a big popular book and advocated uh, vegetarianism. And, and There was Ascana. Do you know about Ascana? No. This place in Switzerland where... Um, it was um, basically where the hippies were born. Everybody wore yeah. their hair long and wore sandals and were vegetarians. And it had a lot to do with dance. And actually, they, they inspired a lot of people that ended up becoming the um, the, the pre-hippies. And the, and the, who, who was the guy that wrote um, Nature Boy? Um, oh, uh, Ahmad, uh, yes. Abbas, Abbas Ibn, Abbas, yeah, all lowercase. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. it's not it. But. Yeah, Abbas Eden, something like that. Yeah. yeah, he was like a follower of these people, and he was this guy that was living up yeah. in the Hollywood Hills back and in they, the 40s. they had this very interesting routine. They would spend the winters in in pa the Palm Canyons and Palm, Palm Springs, living off the land as much as they could, and then they would come to Ojai for the spring and fall, Citrus harvest. So they spent a lot of time here. Gypsy Boots. Gypsy Boots was, was part, part of that, of that yeah. group. Yeah. yeah, and there was a big natural food restaurant. I can't remember what it was called. And uh, 
in the valley at that time. That was uh, Air, the, not Erewhon. Before, it was something before else. Erewhon. Before Erewhon. And yeah. then Solar Winds, it started here, which is now Rainbow Bridge, was came out of that movement too, although somewhat later. Yeah, so it's all, it's, that's all connected. But everything's like twisted up with Ojai for it sure. It is, yeah. it is. It's fascinating how that works. I wonder what uh, Beatrice Wood's take on the Back to Nature movement was at that time, because she was so sophisticated, it seems like. I couldn't picture her, you know, uh, living barefoot off of uh, palm nuts and such. Right, well, she was definitely living barefoot. She loved to be barefoot. And, you know, from the time she built her place in Lower Ojai, um, just Ojai, if she wasn't... What you, what you would call somebody that just loved the natural world and loved, you know, she had, she was already collecting cactus and growing them and such. And so. Yeah, it's quite a collection you have up there. Yeah, yeah. are yes. those some of them going back to? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes. She, um, she would actually trade them. you mentioned the ranch house. They, they, uh, they would, they would trade. Um, uh, the founder of the ranch house would would trade Alan Hooker. Alan Hooker, it's a fascinating and they, character, and they so. were very they were very close friends. So so yeah, the beginning of the ranch house actually, uh, Roger Gopal arranged that for that piece of land to be purchased because it was adjacent to that point to the Happy Valley School, and they thought it would be provide a place for um, for them to to eat. And yeah. Alan Hooker and his wife had already they had. Um, they already had like some sort of ranch house where they would serve meals and were already doing that. Yeah, it was like a country-style setup or something, as yeah, I right. recall. So Beatrice Wood made the original plates and painted the tables and chairs originally for the original restaurants and was very yeah, much involved. the current owner, Steve, and his general manager, Russ, showed me some sculpture that they found when they were just whacking weeds and brush, like just... Hasn't anybody understood what you've got? Who knows how much that could be worth? Right, right, right. Yeah, and, and I, think they, just, I think they stood it up. I think it's a fountain yeah. or something now. Yeah, yeah. That's very just, cool. Uh, great little treasures. Exactly. So, yeah, well, I believe that, yeah, that was kind of like the dinner table for Beatrice Wood and uh, Krishnamurti and all these people was right. there at the, at the ranch house. Yeah, and really the who's who, because of course, um, Ohio's always drawn this Hollywood crowd as well, because it's so close and and such. So, um, but at some point they made the decision to start serving meat, which was a, uh, a controversial. Yeah, at yes, the time. especially for like Beatrice Wood, because it was a vegetarian restaurant when it began. And and often cited, and I think by no less than Alice Waters as the original California cuisine, right. the farm to table. Growing a lot of their their herb garden there was was famous and changed a, a way people look at their food or their relationship to their food. So very influential. Yeah, from from what I understand, <clears throat> Wolfgang Puck would come up as a big fan of the hookers and such, and so um, so it went out a lot of directions. You know, went to off to Berkeley with with their movie. Yeah, with their it seems like Beatrice. It what is like the Zealand character? But she's Zealand just happened to show up in right, all these right. pivotal moments. <laughs> Beatrice Wood was actually shaping and influencing and creating this these environments, all these ponds or stones thrown into these ponds and all these ripples. And she was she was very much involved. The interesting thing is she never, as much as she was committed to Happy Valley, to the Happy Valley School, to Rosalind Rajapal, she never served on the board. For instance, Beatrice Wood did her she did a good job of being involved and being supportive and being part of that community, but not. Um, becoming one of the leading, or not uh, taking notes or uh, 
organizing the committees. Exactly. Or, um, she was able to just focus on her, her work. I mean, she was happiest working in the studio alone. That was her... She would never belong thing. to a club that would have her as yeah, a member. Yeah, yes, which I feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just because I'm not a joiner. Yeah. Well, speaking of yourself, I know you grew up in the uh, Ohio River Valley or somewhere like yeah, that. Southern, yeah, southern Ohio <clears throat> here in a town called Oxford where a university was and then in northern Michigan in a town called Petoskey, which is a tourist town which was, you know, very much like Ohio as far as the same yeah, challenges a of a tourist town. It has, uh, you know, it's seasonal because it's just too frozen in the winter, although <laughs> they probably, I know where I grew up in the Great Lakes Basin, Winter sports are a big deal. People cannot wait for the lake to freeze over and get out on their snowmobiles and cross-country skis, and it's changed since I was a kid. Yeah, and it was. And, of course, the people that had money would go to the big ski lodge. There would be ski lodges and big ski hills where yeah. you had to spend lots and of money. And big is a relative term. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, we had a bunch of those rope-toe ski resorts in the, on the foothills of the Alleghenies where we were from. It's really they yeah. were great fun, but they were also pretty icy and fast, and you get tore up. Yeah, I really, you know, as a teenager, thought I was living in Siberia or something. And yeah, um, yeah you knew I'd have to go to New York City or Southern California. And you was going to be one of the two, ended up yeah. in Southern California. That must have felt so great that first, first winter. I just remember being in Denver, <laughs> and after I got out of boot camp, and I left Buffalo, you know, lived about an hour outside of Buffalo, and it was... In Buffalo, or 16 below in my hometown, two below at the airport in Buffalo, I get into Denver, it's 70 degrees. Yeah. And this was like in March, like early March. It's a revelation. <clears throat> it's, it's very difficult to leave Southern California and go live somewhere where it's really cold in the winter. Yeah. I, I find, I find that's much easier the other way. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> it tends to work that way. <laughs> yeah, so how did you get into art? What was, the, what was your journey there? Uh, let's see here. Well, I, um, when I was in high school. You know, you, the high school counselor has you into his office to say, you know, well, let's talk about what you're going to do with your life, what classes you should be taking. And I said, well, I said, I got it figured out. I'm going to be a rock star. Of and, course. <laughs> and he said, well, Kevin, you know, that doesn't always work out. You know, you might want something to fall back on. And so I said, oh, well, I got that figured out. If that doesn't work, I'll be a writer. And he said, well, you know, Kevin, that doesn't always work out. Sometimes, you know, you need something to fall back on. I said, well, don't worry. If that doesn't work out, I'll be an artist. And he basically said, you know, get out of my office. Yeah, so you're hopeless. <laughs> gave, gave get up. out of here, kid. Yeah. You're bothering me. Yeah, so basically, you know, art, art, music, and um Literature. It was going to be the art yeah, world. Yeah, before. exactly. That was that was my that was my thing. And, and how? What, where did that come up? What were some of the, you know, look at uh, some writers. Maybe their first set of Nick Adams stories by you know Hemingway stories. It, well, the or, Hemingway loomed large in northern Michigan and because, Petoskey because that's where they summered, right? right exactly out, out toward Walden Lake area. They out all around there. Um, so yeah, but really the thing that first blew my mind was I had a very normal you know, kind of family situation. My dad was an insurance agent, you know, it was like, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of art. There wasn't a lot yeah, of... Yeah, I know. My dad um, was a grave digger. He your dad was a like, grave digger? Well, so was I. That was the... Oh, I didn't know you were a grave brothers, digger. brothers, yeah. Six years I dug graves. Wow. Rod Stewart was a grave digger. Did you know that? No. Rod Stewart from the Scotland? Singer. The singer. 
Rod Stewart from, yeah, he grew up in Scotland. Yeah, I didn't know that. I'll have to check that out. I think I read that he was a grave digger at yeah. one point. But, yeah, um, it's good hard work. It's honest work. And, you know, when you're in 19, early 70s, when things are impoverished, uh, you know, having walking around money was a big deal. Yeah, it's probably, it was a good workout. Um, yeah. but, but what happened was I met this, um, this other kid in middle school, and his father was a poet. And, wow. and um, basically, this guy had a great thing going. His name was Max Ellison, and he would self-publish his books. And he had arrangements with all the schools in the Michigan area where he would go and do give a talk and, and do master readings. master classes. And right, and, and sell and sign his books and such. And um, so he was kind of this sort of famous, eccentric character, and his wife um, was involved with um, social work and with psychology. So she had all these great books that were this whole, whole other world for me. Yeah. So their house was all original art and antiques and, and all these great books and everything. That was your first view into a, a different... Yeah, it's like there's, way, another, there's yeah. Another, another way of being. Yeah, like yeah. the funhouse mirror. Yeah, so I jumped through that. And yeah. um, it was never quite the same. I know. I had a similar experience. My best friend's father owned a bunch of newspapers and lots of, uh, I don't want to call them fancy rich people, but they were fancy and they were pretty wealthy. Lived in our hometown because it was really beautiful and you have the spectacular views and they didn't mind the 250 inches of snow a year. <laughs> but yeah, he was a sculptor. Besides, you know, the fam it was the family business, the newspapers. He taught art and was a sculptor, and he had all of his students, and he had this this 1830s brick house with, like, 18 rooms, and then he built this glass atrium. So the house was like an art gallery. It was just really impressive. And some of his students, many of them, made a living at art. Wow. And that, the idea that you could do that was just staggering to me. I thought everybody was... Chasing paychecks, I thought right. that was all you did. Well, most people are in that world. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the weird thing about Beatrice Wood. She actually, when she start first, first, just first started doing ceramics um, at the age of forty, um, she sold some of her little figures that she made, and she thought, "Oh, I can make a living as an artist." Which, which every parent tells their kids, "No, whatever you do, you're gonna no, die in a gutter." No, she never had a civilian job in her whole life, did she? Uh, she worked in a bookstore in New York City, um, which, again, was frequented by the sort of who's who of the literary yeah. world. Um, and she was an actress on the, st on the stage, so that brought in a paycheck. Um, but, yeah, I'd say from um, the age 40 forward, she was fully self-supporting yeah. and struggling. She actually <clears throat> did not, she, as she put it, she lived her whole life in arrears until she was 86, and she got her first big paychecks when Garth Clark became her dealer, showing her work in New York and Los Angeles. And she said, this is the first time I've ever had extra money. So there's hope for me still, though? Yeah, 86, in, things can turn around. Yeah, <laughs> well, hang on. Yeah, and, and you know, she said the 80s and 90s were the happiest years of her life, so... Yeah. And they certainly were the most successful. They were certainly um, where people really started to recognize who she was. And, and collecting her work. Yeah. And she was working, you know, in the studio every day. And so, that, what is that like managing that collection now? I mean, that's like, <clears throat> you're there all the time, right. right? Aren't people like knocking on the windows? Hey, can I just come in and have a peek? Let's, yeah. you know, well, I'm all yeah, the way from uh, Des Moines. I just... Uh, I, I actually, yes, I hide out when we're not open because people yeah. do come and say, oh, 
this is I came all the way to Ojai, come here, and, and, and you're not open. And I'm like, well, really? Yeah, didn't, okay. You didn't think about you know, checking about the website or something? Google, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I so I try to avoid that. But I, I'd say the biggest challenge of the whole thing is that we don't make any money from Beatrice Wood per se. We don't have a large body of her work for sale. We have a large permanent collection. Um, we're there to educate people about Beatrice Wood. Um, you know, she's written some books, but quite often people look at them and say, "Oh, I'll order that from Amazon when I get home." You know, and yeah. and so our income. Um, you know, I have to raise a lot of money to keep us going because a lot of what we do is our mission is a lot of our missions concerned with Beatrice Wood, um, but that's not a we're not set up to you know make money from Beatrice Wood. Strangely, so yeah. Does any of it come up for auction? I guess there must be other collectors out there that put that work out there. Yeah. So where is it trading? What's the what's the? Well, we get we get secondary market work, so we do have some for sale up there. Um, but basically, it shows up in auction houses all the time. Beatrice Wood worked for decades, and there's there's a lot of work out there. Yeah. So, so it's it, prolific. Yeah. So it does show up. It's every every major museum has her work in depth. So. Um, so we're, we're always looking, I mean, I have a, a list of people that are really looking for like a really good Beatrice Wood piece, and they don't oh, come so you're scouting often. for them. Yeah, exactly. But they don't, a lot, most of them are in museums or still in private Yeah, people want to hold yeah. on to it. They, exactly. Yeah, I think partly because it's so enchanting. I think it's just like, there's depth and darkness to it, but it's also fun to look at. And right. It has a very, you know, sprightly attitude about it. Right, so no, I'm not describing it well, but you know what I mean. It's, well, well, I'd say there, you could split her work into two different bodies. One being the the luster vessels and all of that, yeah. which have a magical <clears throat> quality to them. And and lusters were, you know, the alchemists looked into lusters because they thought we were taking base metals and turning them into gold. Yeah. Which you know, transubstantiation. Yeah, she did all these vessels that these beautiful gold. You know, they have a a sort of a holy grail look to them. And then of course there's also her sculptural work, which is heavily influenced by folk art, but also more her drawings and more um, having to do with social commentary, I would say, would be the best yeah. way of describing it. And again, trying to shock people much of the time. Yeah, she even shocks herself. She, that's, that's the thing. She, she was looking for true love, and she ended up involved with these bohemian men that said, no, there's a difference between sex and love. And, and um, she still, you know, it, I think she was in her 90s, there was an interview where she said, I'm starting to think the knight in shining armor is not going to show up and, you know, sweep me off my feet and such. You know, she had this belief. Still, that true very old-fashioned romantic notion. Exactly. And so that's why she, it, it, she did shock herself because that's from the right to the end, she was still that romantic little Well, girl. do you think if uh, she would have met her... Um who was the character, uh, Leonard DiCaprio's character and uh, oh, Jack? Jack something. If she would have met that man and actually in real life, we may not even be having this conversation. We might have. She would. Just, she, she she would have gladly given it all up for love. She made that quite clear to the feminists and upset. <laughs> who tried to uh, tried to probably adopt her, especially like right. second wave feminism. Yeah. And, yeah, because yeah. she's a self, you know, there's like you're a self-made woman. You lived life yeah. on your own terms. You did everything your way. And she's like, well, I would give it all up for a man, you know. Yeah, which is yeah. the one thing that, you know. That <laughs> wasn't the right what's way a to man, What's a woman, a, man, a woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. A fish without a bicycle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she did not ascribe to that view. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you're, you yourself have been had a busy pandemic. I know uh, we had a little blurb in the magazine about your latest 
Creations. You came out with two COVID albums. Yeah. Yeah, and tell, tell us about that. I didn't know that you were also a musician as well as a curator and uh, administrator. Well, that was the other big influence in my life. When I was a kid I, in southern Ohio, I had an aunt and uncle that had sort of a little hill, hillbilly band. And, and back then, that's what you know, my grandparents, everybody called it hillbilly music. They, that was, today, it's Americana or something else. Yeah, but, uh, Roots. Yeah, Roots music. But at the time, that's what it was. And it, I, I was just enchanted with the music. Yeah. So, um, so, so that the, the the new music really comes out of uh, just being very true to who I am, whether it's yeah, you know, whether it's cool. Do you or feel not. that when you're in the act of creating that, like this is, you know, this this strumming through the generations kind of feeling? I I, I feel that um, yeah, I'm connecting with part of me that's that's always been there, and and it's not so popular, you know. I, I was in the art world, you know, I was curating museum exhibitions, you know, it's, it's, that's a very different Kevin than somebody that's like playing hillbilly music. Yeah. Um, so it's, um, it's a truth to self, but also I, I realized early on that we're in the inspiration business at the center. That's what Beatrice Wood does, more, probably more than anything is inspire people. So you're saying uh, age 60 is not too late to be a rock star? Exactly. Well, that... well the, look, if, if I'd been a, a rock star in the, my 20s or 30s, you know, people would be looking for all on drugs and, uh, oh, God, and fast cars. Who knows what would happen to me? But for one, people would be looking at those videos and saying, man, you don't move like you used to. So I'm like, well, <laughs> if I launch my career at the age of 60, where I'm already a little worse for wear, then, you know, the agents... They keep their expectations in line. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it's all part of your strategy, huh? <laughs> there you go. There you go. I didn't know it was going to be my strategy when I came out, you know, to Los Angeles at 19 with my guitar in my hand, but... It's, yeah. you know, life, uh, as, as John Lennon said, put it, you know, life, uh, something that happens when you're busy making other plans. Yeah. So, uh, what are, who are some of your influencers? Like, uh, you know, there, there seems to be this uh, melding of, of bluegrass, country music, um, folk, like people like Jason Isbell and uh, Sturgill Simpson. I mean, those it's, it's people, big, right? I, that kind of reminds me. I listened to your to your album, and it kind of reminds me of maybe not Sturgill Simpson, but more. Uh, I'm trying to remember the guy's name, uh, Chris Stapleton. Yeah, have you listened to any? Of no, don't, music? don't 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 know him. My uh, I, my my big influences. You, you know, it, Ken Burns did the special on country music, and I and, love that. And in that, he talks about how it became country western. And really, Western music was never part of my thing. It was it was country because it was much more you know Ohio River Valley, Kentucky type yeah. music as opposed to cowboy hats and such. Um, so you know, so I sort of don't like country after a certain point. Although during the late '60s, people like the Nitty Greeter Band, on which uh -huh. again there's a little path that runs through Ohio there. That's right, with the McEwens. <laughs> yes, exactly. But they had did that well. The Circle Be Unbroken album, where they had all, all the old country people playing on it, and then there's Graham Parsons, and there are all these people that then made that kind of music cool again in the '60s, um, which which was great. Um, but I also, you know, as a teenager, fell in love with the Velvet Underground, and so I have this weird mix of you know hillbilly. Yeah. CBGB or something. Well, Garth Brooks was a big heavy metal fan. Was he? Well, yeah, when he was like, you know, 15 years old in Oklahoma, that was like the way that you established your identity. That was your organizing principle to be, to shock people. 
Yeah, you know? I can understand that. I can understand that. So, anyway, so most of my influences go back a ways. Certainly, somebody like Chris Christopherson is a is a hero, and he yeah. fortunately got to see him play the Ohio Bowl. What was that? Two years ago? Oh maybe? man, I heard people say that that was not a great concert. <clears throat> that his voice was was a little rough, yeah. and that he's like his memory's not there. <clears throat> you know, he has memory issues and such. But just to see him. Yeah. Well, I've heard know. Bob Dylan forget lyrics. I think he's. Even jokes about it, right? If anybody's going to forget lyrics, it's going to be Bob Dylan. Well, well, he wrote these lyrics that were like, I mean, I can't remember the uh, what it's called, but he was big on these long, um, memorized poems and songs. I mean, yeah, like sestinas and you know the ones that have a very particular form. Right. Yeah, I I could not play you a, a you know, even a Bob Dylan song that I really really like without having the lyric sheet in front of me. There's just too many lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> You know, Chris Christopherson's got some great lyrics too. Yeah, yeah, he was, you know, he was an interesting character because he came from a place of being a little more intellectual, a little more into poetry. And a fighter pilot, right? Right, yeah, and lots of different careers and uh, behind him. So, and then became an actor. I mean, it turns out the camera loved him. Yeah, you know, I mean, my my that's my version of Star Is Born is the one with Chris Christopherson. Yeah, thing. Barbara Streisand. <clears throat> so what's uh, you know what's the plans for the future for the for the foundation and yourself and how does that all go together and what's the you know you know the center never has more than six months worth of money left to make sure we're going to survive and it's wow. been it's been that way now for uh 16 years and somehow magically year after year we squeak along you know we we have we have no endowment we have very little hope of getting an endowment um there was the sense in happy valley among the foundation for decades that um, the things would just sort of magically happen the way they're supposed to happen, this yeah. sort of belief in things, which was part of Annie Besant's way of seeing things. Yeah. Um, so it's been a wing and a prayer all this time, so the plan is to keep that going. Keep winging and keep praying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and keep it, it keeps it interesting, I must say. Yeah, I've got So, um, what, what about the collection? Uh, is there serious uh, scholars and people that come in doing research? And, you know, what, what, is, what, are, what is the... I think I'm having a terrible time forming the question I'm asking, but is there a sense now that Beatrice Woods... Where is her legacy? What do people think of her? What's the uh, relationship in uh, intelligentsia towards her work? Um, it's there. She's very well known. She's like I said. She's highly collected among museums. So we definitely have museum curators that come through, um, <clears throat> leading artists that come through, um, writers. You know, she's constantly being. What, what happens in the art world is you're constantly reevaluated every every so many decades. Yeah, every generation. Yeah. Everybody. What, what's going on now? And. To a big degree. Right, because you look at everything that's going on and then you put it in the context. That, that frame yeah, of exactly. context. Yeah. Exactly, and this is a woman that was part of the Dada movement, who was part of what was called the, uh, the you know, sort of the studio craftsman movement or designer craftsman movement of the post-World War II generation. Yeah, we talked about that, the Black Mountain School. Yeah, all that, yeah. yeah. Cre creating, you know, creating work and living the life of an artist. And then she became part of what was called the American Craft Movement, which now is being seen... You know, the, all, and, and all these movements are seen differently, and so she's seen differently as her place in all these movements. And then there's the fact that she, is, as her dealer Garth Clark has pointed out, she was an iconoclast. She doesn't fit firmly in any tradition. See, she was um, 
an original. I mean, she was a true original every yeah. step of the way. And that's another thing altogether. And that's, I think, one of the reasons she's such an inspiration to people. Yes, I also think that, you know, 86 years old before you feel you're established, <clears throat> that's, yeah. uh, that should give hope to people. Or like FDR said, if you come to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, there's not a weekend that I, somebody, you know, I'm talking about Beatrice Wood's 80s and her 90s and living and working to 105 that one person doesn't turn to the other and say, oh my God, there's hope for me yet. You know? yeah. I mean, it's, it's important. Hope is, you know, really important in this life because that's what opens doors. You know, yeah, possibility like coming out of the pandemic. I know all this talk about the roaring twenties, and I jumped on that bandwagon early. I felt like we came out of the series of black plagues. There was more than one wave, and it killed as much as half of people in England. And it just, but within a generation, the demand for labor workers got such a big pay raise because work was scarce, right. and that set up all these uh, opportunities for people to go, you know, division of labor to go to make art, you know, mm -hmm. like Leonardo da Vinci's father was a, or his, his, you know, he was a bastard, but his father was a notary, so he had access to paper, which was a big deal, and that was all this, you know, the Renaissance, that, that cultural flourishing came out of those dire circumstances as did the Roaring Twenties out of the 1918 flu and World War One too, of course. Right, right. And then um, <clears throat> the, the government did something really brilliant with, uh, with the WPA and involving the arts and, and that. Yeah. And then, of course, and the so GI many Bill. great artists that got their got their starts with the WPA program. And the GI Bill allowed people to go back to school to study a craft and learn it. They say the GI Bill. I've, heard this, stated that it was the greatest social engineering project in human history. I, I, I believe Eight it. Eight million people got their degrees. It was smart. It was, it was you know, if, if you look at how government can make a positive difference in people's lives, that's, that's an excellent example. Cause yeah. it, and it, there was this boom. I mean, that post-World War II boom was incredible. People were buying houses. People were needing things. And, yeah, and that was because of the cheap loans, the VA. Right, VA loans, and the uh, you know the space program. Those are all these right. are all hillbillies from West Virginia, and you know tobacco farmers from Virginia, and just people who would never have had that ladder of opportunity were it not for the GI Bill. Right. Yeah. So it's life changing. So when you you know, for instance, I've, I've written quite a bit about you know art, art and craft history. And yeah, there's no wonder estimating the importance of, of that. Yeah. Now, back to Beatrice Wood. Her romantic example is not a good one, but, you know, how, how did, what did she think about Ohio and just its, you know, I mean, she operated at a certain level. Where did she interact with the rest of us? Was there, like, did she have a favorite handyman or was there the, the pharmacist that she uh, yeah yeah she 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 loved entertained she loved Ohio and was very much part of the community and I'm constantly hearing stories you know I'm, I'll meet people and they say they'll say oh well, well I used to you know do the lawn work for her or I you know did this and and um, you know we have her letters we have all of her 
canceled checks, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Um, so she's very much part of the community and very much involved with the community. And um, and then as you know, she began wearing her saris and her jewelry became in- increasingly seen as a sort of eccentric artist that was the famous. uniform. Yeah, yeah. That that. Um, but then once she did move up to Happy Valley, and then she was in her 80s and, and when 90s. when was that? That was around 1972. Is that when Otto and Vivica took over? That's Otto when and Vivica right. Heino took over her right, right. studio she was, on McAndrew, not McAndrew. On uh, McAndrew, yes, oh, right, right across McAndrew. from Krishnamurti. So yes, the, um, she was invited by Rosalind to build her home up there by the foundation, which was Rosalind was pretty much running, or very influential in anyway. And um, and so she called Otto and Vivica, and and you know Vivica answered, and Vito said, "Would you be interested in buying my place?" And so Otto came in from shoveling snow. They were living in New Hampshire, and she says, "Oh, it's it's, it's Vito. She wants to know if we want to buy her place." And he was like, "Heck yeah!" <laughs> and and Otto and Vivica then bought her place, which allowed her to build the other place up in Happy Valley. Um, and um, they they thrived here because can you imagine how well I'm, I don't know if you've ever done any clay work but clay dries really nicely in in Ojai and I can low humidity yeah and I can only imagine like in New Hampshire in the winter being a ceramic yeah. artist what your situation is with having to deal with that so um, they took to it they, uh, and most people like like when I first came to Ojai my first time I went to visit Ojai I was taken to see Ojai yeah. and I didn't know the history of that house and. Well, he he was a fountain of information for sure. He quite a character. <laughs> he was a character. He really? told he told some great stories. Some of them might have even been true. Yeah. Well, he they were. I found because I did write a, a historical essay on him for a museum catalog that they were sort of like um, fish, you know, fishing stories. You know what I mean? They as uh, the more he told them, bit, yeah, they got yeah. embellished a little bit. Yeah. You know. So, um, which, you know, is still an ongoing problem with the yellow glaze, the people that believe they have this thing that's priceless because it's this yellow glaze that it's not clear whether or not there were ever, you know, people from Japan or... Showed up or, with uh, $7 million in a suitcase exactly, or whatever. Exactly. It's, yeah. not, it's not clear to what extent... Um, that he actually that licensed that or even yeah. had the formula. But I lo- that is an amazing glaze. Yes. It is beautiful, cool. and I've never seen anything like it anywhere else. Right. So it's true to me. I mean, I well, wouldn't have works. any evidence to the contrary. Works. And, you know, I, I used to know an artist who lived in the hills of Kentucky that said you should never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah. Well, so. the <laughs> le- legend of Liberty Vance, or uh, Liberty Valence, you know, if you got to choose between the truth and the legend, print the legend. <laughs> yeah. So the legend of Beatrice Perfect. Wood, I think we've, <clears throat> we're helping perpetuate that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So thanks for joining me, Kevin. This is really fun. Well, great. I'm glad, I'm glad you had me here and glad, I'm glad to be. I, I love this. Is what I do all weekend long is I talk about Beatrice Wood. <laughs> that doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Kevin. Just thinking out loud. It never ceases to amaze me the Mobius strip of Ojai's intersections with practically every person of distinction in the world of spiritual movements, philosophy, education, and of course the arts. And the one person through whom all these roads run is Beatrice Wood. It was great fun to learn more about her, and I hope you agree. If you haven't already, check out the Beatrice Wood Center for the Arts. You'll be glad you did. Well, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. 
we'll keep an ear out for you.